welcome to Shedding Light Hunting Stories Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the average Joe and their great hunting stories. I'm your host, Travis Williams. You're listening to episode 52. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. It is another week and I'm excited that you have uh, taken part of your week to either put this on your earphones or in your car and uh, a buddy of mine the other day said I've listened to your voice in my head for like two or three hours and I I thought it's kind of a weird thought to me that somebody would just listen to my voice and hopefully it's not my voice hopefully it's other people's voices because this is not about me this is about stories this is about hunting stories and we're going to hear some great ones today Uh, I will tell you that real in my neck of the woods what's been exciting is some 3D shoots last night started the indoor 3D uh, range at the local bow shop and man, I love that. Just fun just to get in there and, and shoot. And then uh, also coming up in May is the Total Archery Challenge. And I'm going to the one in Seven Springs, Pennsylvania. And man, uh, it's just a blast. Did that last year. And what's it's just like 3D shooting on steroids. Like these, you're going up a ski lift and they drop you off on top of a mountain. And you've got these really epic, crazy, long shots on some really cool 3D targets. And so I really enjoy doing that. That's what I spend my time doing. Probably got one more hunt up my sleeve. Um, I think I got one more in the tank before February, February is when our season ends. And um, I, I think I, I think so. We'll just have to see. I'm getting some new ropes in the mail today uh, for my saddle, and I know I want to try those out. So might be headed out for one more hunt, but I'll keep you up to date on that. Uh, not going to spend a whole lot of time talking today. Uh, we're going to jump in with our guest. His name is Jamie. Met Jamie through Daniel Mummery, who's been on the podcast before and talked about Australia hunting. And Jamie is from Australia too, but not originally. Uh, he actually is from New Zealand. And this guy has hunted everything. He hunts animals that I don't know how to pronounce their name. Uh, chamois, I think, is one of them. Uh, there's all kinds of these crazy goats that he's hunted before. Samber deer, of course. Uh, Wapiti, which is elk, their version of elk. Um, and then also red stag. And today, uh, what we get into is the story of this giant red stag he was able to take several years back. And it is an epic story. I think that you're really going to enjoy this. Also, just want to encourage you once again, if you have not hit review for me, uh, I would really appreciate it if you'd leave a five-star review if you're on iTunes. And then I think there's a way to leave a review perhaps on some other things. Some of you have just sent me an email just saying, hey, keep up the good work. Man, I appreciate that. Thank you to whoever you are, you folks who have reached out and just, um, you know, I, I don't do it for that necessarily, but it is um, very rewarding whenever I know that, you know, this isn't falling on deaf ears. You guys actually enjoy it, and you're subscribing, telling people about it, and I, I do feel um, that the podcast is gaining some momentum as we go forward into 2020. So thanks for that. You guys are awesome, and I, I can't thank you enough for, for listening. Uh, enough of that. I'm not going to cry. I promised myself I wasn't going to cry. Uh, <laughs> if you would like to be on the show, send me an email at sheddinglightod at gmail.com. If you have any stories, I'm always looking for guests, trying to get ahead in the game a little bit, and uh, put out one a week at least. So all of that hubbub is done. It is time to get to Jamie Carl from New Zealand. Here we go. Good morning, Jamie. How's it going, man? It's good, man. It's a bit early, but it's good. Yeah, um, I'm not the most uh, intelligent person of all time. Uh, we, we're uh, laughing a little bit. It's actually, what? it's 4 a.m. there in uh, Australia? <laughs> well, it's 4 a.m. in Perth, and it's 7 a.m. in Sydney and uh, Melbourne. <laughs> yeah, so I, whenever you told me you were in Australia, I didn't look at the specific city, and we set up the time, and it's actually, it's not 7 a.m. like I thought it was. It's 4, but you're, you're up, and I appreciate you being willing to come on, man. It's awesome. Well, you know what? You are right. It's 7 a.m. somewhere in Australia, so you know, yeah. you, you, you got that right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Me, me and geography, we don't always get along. But, uh, <laughs> well, uh, Jamie, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, Perth and all the things, uh, you know, about Australia. And just kind of give us a little bit of a, an idea of who you are and what you do and, and that fun stuff. Yeah, cool. Well, I, I'm, I'm living in Perth, but you can probably tell for anyone that knows the difference between an Australian and a New Zealand accent that I'm not originally from Australia. I'm from New Zealand and I'll, I'll circle back to New Zealand soon. But uh, Perth's where we work. My family's here. I've got a wife and two beautiful daughters that are seven years old and five years old. Um, Perth, I think, is a, a sort of a hub for us at the moment. We've got a good uh, base here and the lifestyle's pretty laid back. It's generally beautiful, nice, warm weather. The beaches are great. The hunting opportunities in Perth aren't the greatest, though, so I travel generally to go for my 
remote wilderness experience, mountain experience, backpack hunting experience, which is usually taking me to the state of Victoria, yeah, uh, which is on the eastern coast of Australia. So Australia is really big. Earth is on the sort of southwestern border um, or edge. So we look out into the Indian Ocean, but a lot of the hunting that I do is in Australia is over in Victoria, which is where the uh, city of Melbourne is. Right. And then north of that, the mountains, there's sort of like a great dividing range that kind of runs from pretty much uh, where Melbourne is right the way up towards Cairns. I mean, there's a, a band of mountains that kind of pick up and drop away and pick up and drop away along that great dividing range. So I like to target being a Kiwi or a New Zealander where I grew up doing a lot of hunting in, in the mountains. I feel like that's the closest thing to home for me in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I still... I still circle back to New Zealand uh, each year if, if I can. And I'm actually heading off to New Zealand tomorrow with uh, my two daughters for 10 days. And my wife's going to stay home in Perth. She said, I'll, I'll pay for your holiday and you, you guys go and have fun, um, <laughs> which I think is great. So yeah, that's great. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll get a bit more hunting in when I go back home. Um, now, Perth, Perth is a, it's a pretty big city, right? Yeah, Perth's got a population of just over a, a million, and it's quite a spread city. So, like for a, the thing we like about Perth is it, it, it is a city, but it's and we're not usually city folk. Neither Elisa or I, we're both Kiwis, by the way. Um, not neither of us have ever really been city livers, or we never were brought up in big cities. But Perth's very spacious, so the city's quite spread. Uh, which means that you know you've got urban sprawl, which carries on for probably far too long. You don't get that density uh, that you have in other cities, like certainly not like Sydney. And I'd I'd say any of your big major cities in America would probably be quite similar. You know, you get those big buildings and everything's congested, and you feel like there's just people around you all the time. Perth's not like that. Perth's quite spacious and lots of parks and lots of playgrounds and. Um, lots of places to go for bushwalks, and then you've got the beaches. So it's a really easy place to live. It's just yeah. not the best place for hunting. So. <laughs> what what is your, What do you do for a living there, Jamie? Yeah, I'm an environmental scientist. So I, I studied uh, environmental management at university just for a bachelor's degree, and then I uh, didn't know if I wanted to join the workforce yet. So I, I was having so much fun at university because I had the flexibility to go hunting, basically. So I said, oh, you know what, I'm going to stick around for a master's degree. Did that in natural resource management, so sort of stayed in the environmental sciences space, but went um, more to understanding natural resources and management, and then finished that. After seven years in total at uni, I probably dragged it out for an extra year that I didn't need to, but again, that was just because I just loved hunting the Southern Alps, and like being a university student was uh, some of the best times of my life. So when I finished that, my wife, um, she'd been working already for a couple of years because she did a, a degree in commerce and got into the workforce after her bachelor's. And she saw an opportunity in Perth with the resources boom. And I'd just finished doing my master's in natural resource management. So she was kind of like, well, I reckon we should go over there. Um, there's some great jobs and they pay really well. And, and we looked it up and it was like, oh, okay, well, Gosh, the hunting doesn't look great over there, but I guess I, was, I guess I guess I'd just come off the back of, you know, uh, studying and hunting a lot during uni, and maybe that was the next chapter in, in our lives. Was, oh, I've got to get a job, and having a job probably is going to mean more commitment and less time available for those hobbies. But I'd just come off like seven years of going hunting as much as I possibly could, to the extent where my relationships <laughs> with other people. Uh, were limited, including my, my partners. You know, I was just hunting probably too much. So maybe the, the move to Perth wasn't a bad thing for my personality style and, and selfishness because I think you can, you know, hunting is a selfish endeavour, whether you like it or not. You're yeah. taking time away from your family, and sometimes that's a long amount of time. Uh, but if you're doing that too frequently, you know, you can end up losing that family connection. And I, and I think I would have maybe lost that connection with her and, and maybe never started a family. So coming to Perth, while it meant hunting opportunities dwindled away, I, I think I found a bit more balance in my life. Mm. Um, but now that the kids are kind of, well, we've started a family, and as mentioned, the kids are at seven and five. We've kind of got them over that stage of being totally dependent. They're still dependent, but 
they're not just totally dependent like they were. Uh, I feel like there's a bit more time coming back into our lives now. So Elisa's getting back into running. I'm getting back into my, well, I'm not getting back into my fitness. I'm still staying fit, ma- making time to remain fit and taking time to go to the archery club and shoot my bow now. Uh, go to the rifle clubs and shoot my rifle and just slowly getting back into those passions that uh, are still there. Like It's like a fire that's just been simmering and now I'm ready to start adding some fuel. <laughs> uh, it sounds like that fire has been you know, going for like a long time for you. This has been something that you grew up. How did you you know, initially get into hunting in New Zealand growing up? What was, um, you know, is it something your family did or how did, how did this all start for you, Jamie? Yeah, that's a really good question because I didn't get brought up in a conventional hunting family. So my, my dad wasn't a deer hunter or uh, hunted a lot of the species that I now hunt in New Zealand. Uh, but he was an outdoorsman. He was a, he's a forester by by science background, so he does a lot of forestry work. Um, and he'd always have us in the outdoors. So that was kind of the the landing point was being in the outdoors, camping lots. Uh, and doing stuff, bushwalks. And, but he also did have rifles. He had tw- a twenty two rifle just for shooting rabbits and possums, which um, both of those species are, are non-native in our country, and you're allowed to shoot as many as you want as, of them. And he had a shotgun for shooting ducks, which he, he never sold. But at university when he was growing up, he did own a three oh three for hunting deer because as a student and in New Zealand, you know, times were tough during the... 70s and he uh, 1970s when he was going through university he shot the odd red deer for meat and fallow deer for meat so he knew how to hunt but he just wasn't actively practicing it certainly not in the way that I do like I I am very passionately and obsessively into hunting like many people listening to this podcast are um, but it didn't it, it wasn't a family thing so I, I started showing an interest in hunting as soon as I, I was out with those rabbit shoots at the age of seven or five uh seven or eight years old my brother was five or six and just i i don't know i always liked the being outdoors was the first draw point and then the second point was you know finding something to having a purpose you know and hunting is giving you great purpose you're, you're trying to track an animal or find their habitat or understand their whereabouts their movements where they feed even as far as like rabbits we used to have these you know, know where these rabbit holes were and you sort of knew where they would feed and around that first and last light they're always very active so right at that young age I was drawn to it and um, and then by the age of about 12 to 13 I started spending more time doing bushwalks at a I was at a boarding school so my parents uh, lived in lots of places around the world but they eventually sent me back to New Zealand to go to the boarding school um, I sort of jumped a little bit there but between the age of uh, Zero to five, I was living in Vanuatu, but still doing stuff outdoors, you know, fishing at the beaches and getting an understanding of the land and the connection to living off the land and, and uh, you know, making fires on the beaches and stuff like that, camping and that. And then from the age of five to uh, the age of eight, we were living back in New Zealand, which is when Dad had the rifle and the hunting on our grandparents' farm. And then from the age of about eight to... Uh, 11 we lived in Vietnam of all places in Hanoi which was Mm. a very foreign experience but uh, unique and then they sent me to boarding school at the age of 11 back to New Zealand and I stayed there until I finished my high school and then went on to university and I think going back uh, to boarding school I met a lot of uh, young kids at the boarding school and a lot of people that get sent to boarding school in New Zealand are from rural communities and farms where Maybe there's not a good education system in those rural areas. It may be similar to in America, but it's certainly, I see that in, in Australia as well. Those boarding schools get a lot of those rural property owners that um, want their kids to have a, a bright future. So they send them to these central education centres like boarding schools. And that's where I met some of these uh, kids that were from rural farms and you'd get invited back to their farms and on their farms. Invariably, they would have animals like, goats or pigs or uh, bigger game animals so just slowly got introduced to those uh, sort of hunting opportunities which I think was just a natural progression from the small stuff yeah. and by the age, by the age of 15 
in New Zealand, you are allowed to get your firearms license when you turn 16. So when I was about 14, I was starting to shoot goats uh, on properties. Um, and by the age of 15, I was showing a really strong interest in hunting for deer. And my dad had said to me, look, when you when you turn 16, you're obviously allowed to go for your firearms license. But if you do well at school for that particular schooling year for exams, I'll, and if you get 70% average across your your subjects, and I, I, I've never been an academic, I have to work hard to get 70%. <laughs> um, but I worked my butt off because he, he said, I'll give you $1,000 towards a rifle if you get an average across your six or f- uh, six, five or six subjects. Can't even remember what the subjects were now. But at the end of the year, I got 70.4%. Oh, man. Averaged it. So he gave me a 1000 bucks, And it wasn't enough to buy a rifle outright. I'd been working on like doing forestry pruning because obviously Dad was a forester, so he had lots of contacts and said, mate, you're at the stage now where you should start to earn some money over summer and it, it can help you know, go towards a vehicle later on. Or in my case, it was like, nah, mate, I really want to buy a rifle to get into hunting. Because as soon as I turned 16, I literally, ha- I had already bought the rifle with dad. He he had a firearms license, so it was actually his firearm. I turned 16 something like five or six months later after getting my exams and, and finally um, getting, getting money to put it onto a rifle. And at 16, the night that I turned 16, I'd already booked into the police station to do the, uh, the firearms license test. So in New Zealand, you have to do a test. So something like 30 questions that you've got to answer and you have to get 28 of them right. And there's certain um, certain questions that you cannot get wrong because it's part of the seven basic principles of owning a firearm and being safe with a firearm. So anyhow, I passed that. Um, and during that sort of between the age of 15 and 16, even though I didn't have a firearm license uh, or my own firearm, um, or even as early as 14, I was going hunting with other people and shooting uh, goats. And I think the first deer that I shot was with my dad's mate who, who became my hunting mentor because my father wasn't, wasn't a deer hunter like bush hunting. He'd done a little bit on rural properties. And this old man by the name of Stan Lowe, and I think there's probably a stand low in everyone's lives <laughs> I've come to find because these older generation, I mean, Stan Lowe, when I was 15, he was like 65 years old. So Stan Lowe's now like well into his 70s. Um, well, he might have been in his 50s, but he just felt so old and knowledgeable and wise compared to my dad, who was in his 40s. Um, and I just, I sort of took to him uh, like, like he was a, grandfather figure and he he took to me like a, a sort of a grandson figure because he had three sons that were right into hunting and he could see I had this really burning interest in hunting and he he made the time for me to 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 bring me into his fold with his family and I mean he had three kids that wanted to hunt with his dad all the time and yet he still made he carved out a special amount of time to help me understand how to hunt uh, and he he basically taught me everything I know and I've just built on that foundation um, mm. There's a lot to be said about what my father did as well as a as a as a role model and an outdoorsman, but but really the hunting side of it uh, came from from this Stan Lowe guy, and um, I don't know. So I I worked I sort of uh, was was groomed as a as an apprentice, you could call it. At, you know, he took me out on lots of hunts where he said, "Today you're just going to watch today." You're just gonna wait today. You know it's not your time yet. And he was like, I was really impatient. I really wanted to shoot my first deer, but it took about a year to a year and a half before I got to either have the opportunity to shoot my first deer. Because sometimes he'd say, "Now it's your turn to shoot a deer," but you might spook them or that frighten them and they run off. Um, and other times it just wasn't an opportunity or someone. You know, the deer had been seen and, and, and you couldn't quite get in front because, well, it's off to the side. So one of his sons shot it or he shot it himself. Um, but after a year and a half or so, I finally got my first deer with Stan. And actually that day I shot two, uh, two, two hinds. And in New Zealand, it's a really different system to in America. Um, and I'm no expert on America, but 
doing a little bit of research before I do an elk hunt in, in Idaho and I've been looking at some of the state regulations and you guys really do manage your resource, right? You mm-hmm. see your game species. I mean, they are native to your country, so they, they need to be managed. But our, our deer species and, and animal species that people hunt in New Zealand are non-native to our country. So they, they don't get the same value placed on them as what they do in, in your country or in Europe for those species in Europe that are um, native. So our, um, our country allows, our, our government allows you to hunt on public land at any time of the year. There are some areas that they restrict, might be high recreation use areas um, in, in certain parks that get a higher density of tourists walking or tra- trampers walking or hiking during summertime. But generally, it's a, it's a free-for-all in New Zealand, so you can hunt and shoot as many animals as you want, um, as often as you want, and there's no limit or bag limit and no species, uh, not species, no gender limit on what you can do. There are some sort of under, uh, what's it called, ethics that people adopt, which is, well, you don't shoot hinds during, during calving season for obvious reasons. You don't want to shoot a mum and have its calf die. Um, right. a, a terrible death but there's not there's nothing stopping you in New Zealand from shooting whatever you want and how how however many as you want and this stand low and it's one of the things that I I changed my mindset over time but at the time Stan Lowe's view was you know he'd come through the era of having way too many deer in New Zealand and they went through uh, culling with helicopters and uh, foot colors where they'd send professionals in to go and and basically cull deer and keep their tails and sometimes skins and sell them. Um, and, 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 and then later on, when the helicopter started doing wild animal recovery operations, they would actually utilise the meat and export that meat and at least get some financial gain from it. But, but he came through an era where there was far too many deer because there's no natural predators in New Zealand. It's not like America where you've got your cougars and other um, predators that can you know, wolves that can keep population in check. Right. But the role of, uh, of a hunter and a professional culler um, is to do that for New Zealand. And so his view was very much any deer, the only good deer is a dead deer because, um, <laughs> you know, because, because they were perceived as a pest, right? And, and a lot of New Zealand people, me included, would, would take that view of, all right, we've got a role to, to, to remove these deer, I mean, we're obviously utilising the meat. We're not just leaving the meat, but but you you had this sort of perceive perception that these were pests that we had to eradicate and destroy, um, and not manage it like a resource because it's quite a different mindset. If you, if you if you start to see a resource as being and having an impact on the landscape, like some of these wolves are in some areas, I mean, they're native and you want to manage them, but then you don't want them to become pest-like either where there's so many of them that it's creating a real problem for people and then people's perceptions on that resource can change pretty quick and then uh, if it falls into that pest category or nuisance category it gets a very different form of management uh, or reaction from people and so I I grew up in that um, under uh, well grew up hunting with this view that these these animals needed to be shot for conservation reasons, and I still agree with that. I don't, I don't disagree with that. But I've, I also adopt the view that I do value this resource. I don't want to just have a boom and bust cycle, which is what often happens in New Zealand, where the numbers get too high. The government puts a priority on removing them, so they organise these huge culls, and, um, and 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 that's also including dropping a lot of poison on the landscape to 1080 poison to. Oh, to wow. remove them, um, so I don't, I don't, I, I do understand that they are introduced at an environmental science degree. They've got to be managed. That's also important. But I think there's a lot of stakeholders like hunters who spend a lot of money and time. I mean, if you look at you know, probably many of the people listening to this podcast, how, how much money do you spend on hunting to access that wonderful resource uh, that that we call hunting and and wild meat and the outdoors? It's a yeah. lot. So like. We've got to manage that resource. 
Yeah, you bring up a really interesting concept there, Jamie. I, I think, you know, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Um, there's different styles of hunting, of course, in the United States. And, of course, my biggest thing I know the most about would probably be whitetail and even don't know that much about that. But, you know, it, it's um, you have different philosophies. We've talked about this before on the podcast. Those that are strictly just it's it's a, the resource is that it's a meat, you know, it's just, you're killing for meat. There's others that want bigger age class of deer. Um, mm. and so we've, um, we talked about that thing just last week, actually, there's a deer drive kind of thing is, a uh, one of the ways to hunt and you get a bunch of guys and you can drive deer, but we talked about the fact that, you know, if there's not management practices in place, you know, give it a year, a couple years, five, 10 years, and you shoot every single deer that comes through and you don't, you're not selective, then the resource is depleted <laughs> and it gets really hard the following years if you're not practicing a little bit of that. So, you know, I can see what you're, you're getting at there. And it's probably obviously on a grander scale whenever there's no, you know, federal or state regulations there either. No, that's, that's right. And, and we get some areas of New Zealand, and I'll use an example of Fiordlin, where there's pockets of uh, game animals, or, or it's a herd. It's basically a herd of wapiti or elk that were gifted from, uh, um, might have been Roosevelt. I, I actually can't remember the history of where that and what that species. It wasn't Rocky Mountain elk. It must have been Roosevelt elk. were donated oh, okay. to New Zealand uh, in like the 18th uh, 1800s at some stage or late 1800s early 1900s where they were released and so there is a population of wapiti in, in fiordland uh, which is a really remote part of new zealand and for many many years it was you know fell into the same cycle as every other species of deer in new zealand it was kind of like you know we've got a role to play you've got to kill them get rid of them but over time fiordland just being such a unique herd and having such a strong hunting interest from New Zealanders and people around certainly Australia and maybe even other parts of the world that put in for ballots. So that's a that's a balloted system. So there's a little bit more um, management structure that's put around the Fiordland Wapiti herd. And over the last, certainly the last decade, but even as far back as 15 years, I've seen a lot of uh, volunteers. These are all volunteers doing the stuff. These people are not paid. The, the game management council that manages the, the Wapiti herd are not making money from it. They're doing it because they love and want to manage that resource. Have right. sort of established, um, I'd call them sort of quasi guidelines because no one can tell you what you can and can't do. It's not illegal to just go in there and, and shoot whatever class bull you want or remove animals uh, for the purposes of meat or trophy, whatever. It's it's not illegal to do that stuff, but but ethically and morally, that that Wapiti uh, Fiordland Wapiti Foundation are uh, slowly but surely changing the, the mentality of, well, if you want to come and hunt the, the Wapiti herd in Fiordland, there are a certain number of principles and, and guidelines that we want you guys to take, which mm -hmm. is to aim for those older age classes. Uh, you know, if it looks like a young Wapiti, then you know, do not remove those animals from the herd. Cows are really important for the breeding stock of that herd, so don't shoot cows. Um, if you see red deer, which we get a lot of red deer, that's our most common deer in New Zealand, red deer interbreed with wapiti. And they even say, look, if you're unsured, be, you know, don't shoot the hybrids, leave that for the professionals because they then get helicopters in at certain times of the year. And they've got professional shooters that know colorations, the size, um, and, and know the difference for, for culling purposes. So they are managing that herd. And that herd in the last... I would say 30 years, there are some really good quality bulls coming out of there now. And it's similar to America where they put on ratios and, you know, there's certain there's certain restrictions and, and but they're legally binding, right? So if you get caught by a game warden doing the wrong thing, then there's a big penalty here in New Zealand. Well, there in New Zealand, because I'm in Perth now. They, they're not legally binding, but you'll certainly cop flack from the hunting community if you don't sort of abide by those principles of, remove age class bulls uh, if you want to start seeing more 50 inch bulls don't shoot them when they're 40 inches and that's <laughs> right. a really it, it's a really hard thing to do for kiwis because we've been brought up with this different mindset of you know we can do anything we want because it's legally allowed and i'm not saying that's a good or bad thing i'm just saying that's kind of the that, that's where we've come from and 
but the but the Wapiti Foundation, the Field and Wapiti Foundation, is slowly changing that, and people are starting to see the benefit of that management regime. That's good. Um, I think we're so used to so many regulations. You know, the regulations are pretty thick. Whenever, especially if you're doing Western game hunting here in the United States, you know, the the manual is incredibly th- thick. In Ohio, mm. they put out a little manual, but that's not even all the laws that there are. And so, I think some people kind of wish that we were in your shoes sometimes. Like, oh, I wish we didn't have the regulations. But without the regulations, it's kind of up to everybody's own ethics mm. and every, everybody plays by different rules whenever that comes yeah. into play yeah. so that makes it kind of a, a difficult thing there uh jamie i want to ask you i wanted i wanted to dive in a little bit to some of your like specific stories because you have been able you have a, a youtube channel called mountain man hunting films and it's got a ton of videos and content on it i just thought it'd be interesting to hear some of those uh stories about maybe red deer or uh chamois or some of those things that just are kind of memorable hunts because you've being able to hunt New Zealand, I can't even comprehend just other than watching your videos, what that, what that must be like. So can you bring us through some of your, your favorite, you know, most memorable trips and adventures that you've been on? Yeah, mate, I'd love to, because like I've, I've not hunted a lot in other parts of the world, so it's hard to compare, but New Zealand is just something really special about New Zealand. And I'm not saying that because I'm a patriot, I'm saying that because it really does grab you at the heart for any of you Americans that have been to New Zealand or have mates that have been to New Zealand I'm sure you can attest to it's a really special place and it's small so it's not like it's you don't have to travel that far to experience all these great things that New Zealand has to offer unlike Australia man you have to travel a long way I have to travel 4,000 kilometers to go and hunt mountains and, and from from Perth I have to travel 4,000 kilometers to get to there's Melbourne. three there's three time zones at least <laughs> yeah. so, you know, New Zealand doesn't have that problem it's it's small it's got a small population um, which means the pressure on on that public land is not very high, and we've got amazing mountains, especially the South Island. So I'm from the North Island; that's where I grew up. But uh, I fell in love hunting the South Island; that's where I went to university. And so, if I sort of you know listen to your podcast, I like that you let people explain some of their most memorable moments. If I was to explain some of my most memorable moments, almost in my life, actually. Um, it would have to be some of the backpack hunts that I've done in the Southern Alps of New Zealand. And if I was to characterise the Southern Alps for listeners that don't know what they are or what they look like, it's kind of similar to the Rocky Mountains that run down the centre of uh, America, um, except our forests. So we've got these high peaks. It does not go as high as what's in the Colorado region. I mean, that's really high at 12,000, 14,000 feet. Um, we usually use meters, so forgive me if I fall back into meters because that's more common to me. But most of the peaks are kind of around two and a half thousand meters. They can get higher, but two two thousand meters, two and a half thousand meters along the Southern Alps is fairly common. Um, I don't always get that high. I usually stick around between twelve hundred meters and about eighteen hundred meters is usually the elevation band that I find is most productive and holds good habitat and ticks all the boxes for chamois, red deer, tar. Uh, which are the three main core species that I hunt in the Southern Alps. And if I if I turn back the clock, you know, 2009 was one of my favourite backpack hunting expeditions because I went and I always would do these backpack hunts with a, with a close friend that, that I know is a, is a good hunter and, and is also fit. So we're both of a similar, um, you know, we've got similar values and we've got similar fitness so that you get the most out of the hunt as a, as a, team because hunting's a team thing I, I don't usually enjoy doing it solo I, I have done it a lot solo but I there's something about doing it with a mate that makes it um I don't know you can retell a story and you've got another person that can kind of vouch for you <laughs> like yeah no I remember that you yeah, know that was crazy and you can kind of build on that on that memory because you yeah. you're able to talk about it with someone else and so just that means something to me because I, I know there's one other person in our life in my life that I that i no gets that you know it's 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 hard to explain to people that don't know what that backpack hunt was like but 2009 was a rut we call it raw but it's where the red stags uh, are rutting um and it's at a similar time as what you have your for your elk season you, know, you it's the fall it's coming into autumn it's starting to cool down the weather's changing you and call it a, you call it a roar 
Yeah, we call it the roar. It is the oh, rut, but we call I like it that even. I like that even better. I might start calling it that. The roar is coming yeah. up. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's R O A R, not not as in raw food, but it's raw, right. like raw, like a like a stag yeah. or a lion, because the red stags, uh, they call like a they really grunt and roar. So it's just called the roar because if you go into the mountains and and anywhere between late March and mid April in New Zealand. And if you just let out, even if you weren't a hunter and you just let out like a just a just a big lion roar, you know, you you can set off a, another stag and, and that may roar back. So the hills kind of sound like there's these roars coming from different parts of catchments. Um, some areas are more productive than others, obviously, but generally between those dates, go into the mountains and you, you'll have some fun. Mm-hmm. And so this particular. Uh, April trip in 2009, my mate Andre and I, um, we backpack hunted into the Southern Alps and we we basically hunted like from the very first minute that we hit those hills right the way through for two weeks where we were, we were covering country. We'd hunt during the day and we'd move ca- places and move catchments or move um, camps overnight. Sometimes we would actually walk back out to the vehicle and drive to a new location if it wasn't productive, which is something that I've seen done a lot in some of the uh, the born and raised outdoors videos. Yeah. So I, I can connect with those guys. I watch some of their stuff and I'm like, man, this is just like Andre and I, but it's the terrain in America is a lot different to the terrain in New Zealand. When I say terrain, I'm talking about the vegetation, the understory of that forest layer. Right. I wish we had open terrain or open bush canopy like what I see in, in a lot of American videos. I know there can be some thick stuff where it gets a bit tight, but our thick stuff in New Zealand is is really, really thick. So it's slower going. So you can't cover as many. You guys cover some miles in a day. Um, it's really difficult to do that in New Zealand bush because the, the, the understory is just so thick. It's very slow going. You know, you'd be lucky to, backpack hunt with all of your gear and push through native scrub no tracks native scrub uh, a kilometer in an hour is pretty good going in some places um, and if you're in Fiordland man you you can it can take you half a day to cover a kilometer <laughs> that terrain oh, wow. uh, any 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 of you American listeners out there if you want to hunt the hardest terrain that I've ever come up against go to Fiordland put in for a ballot into the for the Wapiti um, everyone has an equal chance. You know, there's no preference points. There's no non-resident um, versus resident type uh, issues. You, you've got the same chance of getting in. And Fiordland is the hardest place to hunt. But that's not my main memory. This one is, is April 2009 where we were chasing red stags in the Southern Alps. And um, we started the hunt in late March because I've always found, and I don't know whether this is going to be the same with elk, um, but we've always found those mature stags, uh, we call them stags, tend to start sort of being ready to, to rut. They've got their territory well marked out. They're starting to get a little bit frisky. Um, maybe hinds aren't quite ready to go on heat yet, but those mature stags are kind of the more, the more ready than the younger stags. That we've been able to roar up at, or get them to respond, they might not fire up totally but get them to respond to our roars even as early as like the 25th of march so we used to always hunt early uh, late march which is early in the season to try and find a mature animal which could start up early and if we didn't find them roaring in the late march they would certainly be roaring by early april so Mm -hmm. it's kind of like google they I think they, you know, you might get them calling in the first week, but yep. by the second week of the season, being probably September the fifteenth and onwards to twentieth of September, you know, they'll, they'll be calling. It might be harder to get onto them because the herd bulls are holding more hinds, but um, we don't have the same problem as that in New Zealand. You might have a, a stag with four or five hinds. You might get them as many as eight hinds or ten hinds, but it's pretty rare that you'd see them with forty hinds or. You know, one bull with 50 uh, cows is, I don't know how you hunt those, but we don't have that problem in New Zealand. But the terrain, it was it was very steep. You know, we, we backpacked into, um, we started off on the east coast of New Zealand and, and the, you kind of can differentiate the landscape with more beach forest. Or, it looks like a conifer, but we it's a beach 
tree, um, more, more conifer type terrain on the east side of our southern Alps. And then on the western side, you get that natural orographic rainfall. It's kind of like Oregon in a way where um, on that Portland side, there's just a lot more rain that falls. So the forest is a lot greener. It's denser. It supports more ferns. It's got a tighter canopy cover than the further west, I guess, you go towards places like Colorado where the canopy covers really quite sparse. Yeah. So the, the eastern side of the Southern Alps is more open. The western side's like a jungle. Um, and both have their merits. You know, the eastern side, you can move through the country better than on the western side, uh, but it gets more hunting pressure. The western side is remote, rugged, and hard work, but, man, you can find some really good age-class animals on the west coast because it just doesn't get the pressure, and it's hard, so it sort of pushes people out. And we, we started on the east coast and hunted you know, for probably five or six days before deciding to just pack further over into the West Coast and hunted over there and shot a, you know, I shot a really nice stag that actually Andre spotted. It was a 13-point stag. We say 13 points. I think you guys would say six by seven. Um, uh, in the re- Eastern United States, we'd go by the points, but in Western, you know, where the big game is, they go by, yeah, they'll go six by seven or whatever it is, yeah. Yeah. So I shot this uh, the six by seven red stag, which is that's a really good class animal. I think we, you know, a true trophy in New Zealand's considered a twelve pointer or six by six and over. Um, but to be honest, you know, a lot of people just are happy to shoot a, a ten a ten point stag as our representative trophy. But you know, we were after a certain animal size, which is around that forty inch mark or or twelve points or more, and we'd seen this really nice stag that we we shot on about it was sort of halfway through the trip and we'd worked our butts off to get to this particular spur where it would open up new terrain further over uh, into good country and it was right on last light like we'd battled our way through we called it like Blair Witch type forest it was just really really dense and it just felt like it was ripping our clothes off our bodies having to Mm. push through this alpine scrub and we finally broke camp right on last light and both of us could have just easily just dumped our packs and just lay there, you know, but, but we didn't. We, we dropped our packs. We had a job to do. We wanted to get to a, a glassing point just for that last, like, even if five minutes of glassing is, is good time well spent or either setting up the next day or maybe there's something there. And it just so happened that we got to this vantage point and I bought my binos up to, look, to start looking and I was glassing the opposite face. And I, and I looked at Andre and he'd, he was sort of, patting his chest, trying to work out where his binos were, and he'd left his binos back at camp about 300 <laughs> metres away. But there wasn't, there wasn't time to go back to get the binos. It was like it was the, the light was fading fast. So then he, he puts his hands up in the shape of binoculars and just starts looking through his fingers. And then, he, and then just to be, a, just to be a, you know, an idiot, but um, he actually spotted the stag right between two rocks, and he goes, Jimmy, there's a stag right there. And then I was like, oh, boo, you know, what BS? He's like, no, honestly, bro, look. And I was like, BS, man, like, go, go and get your binos. You're wasting time. He's like, no, nah, I won't have time, but there's a stag just there. Look. And, I, and, he, and he said, look at those two rocks. In between those two rocks, what is it? And, and I looked through my binos and I was like, holy hell, man, that's a stag. And he's like, oh, he picked it out. That was 200 meters away. But I was glassing like, 800 meters away for the following day and Andre and I've always had the system where it's like it's 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 each other's turn so the previous hunt the year before in the raw I roared in a big 15 pointer for him and he shot that well we did it as a team but it was his turn to shoot so he shot that stag so fast forward to the following year it's like the next person's opportunity is mine if if I shot at that stag and missed it then it's it's free slather, but the first opportunity is for you know we we tag it tag team it to the extent you can right because it's not always it's not always going to fall that way. But we were both together. He'd spotted it. He's like, mate, you know if that's if that's a good class animal, take it. So I we we snuck a little bit closer because we've always tried to get in as close as we can to make a really you know confident shot. We we snuck in maybe another fifty meters. It wasn't much, but it was just enough to get to a next fold in the landscape. And we we're at about we're probably at 12, 
500, 1300 meters, which is categorized by that that subalpine scrub layer where it's it's not tussock yet, but it's not native forest. It's sort of in between. We get this in between zone, and this stag was feeding in this subalpine scrub. So I shot it, and I shot it good. Shot it base of the neck, which made it just rear up and fall into the scrub. But then you couldn't see it. It was just like, man, I hope I got that because it was getting very very dark now. Um, well, you could still see, but it was like fading fast. And shot, slap, animal went down. We toyed, do we go over there now in the dark, which you know was quite steep terrain because all these shoots, uh, probably three or four more folds of this subalpine scrub before you got to this, this stag. And we decided we'd go in the morning. So you know anyone that shoots a good animal and sleeps on it or tries to sleep on it, uh, and you haven't got eyes on it or felt that horn yet to know that you've got that stag can probably attest to having a sleepless night so that night we talked a lot of smack we i certainly found it hard to sleep because you're just sort of toying up in your mind what is it that i shot like it looked like a good animal but you haven't gone to evaluate it up close we didn't put a spotting scope on it because we didn't have time it's agonizing (laughs) yeah so so first thing in the morning i i said well i'm going to go down to the stag obviously but as we were walking up the spur this ridge sorry to get to a point where i could cut down we naturally just glassed together in the morning and he spotted some more deer uh, off in another catchment and i um really wanted to go down to my stag but i also wanted andre to get an animal too so i stayed back and he had his bow on this part of the trip um his compound bow which he just bought so he was just getting into bow hunting and had decided he wanted that extra challenge and I stayed on the spur watching while he basically snuck in for about three hours in and out of many folds to get in on this uh, young stag. It was like a probably a seven or eight pointer. It was a scrubby looking animal, but with a bow, I think he would have happily taken that stag. And it was with three hinds. Um, and he got to within about 40 metres of the stag. And I was using the two-way radio, which is which is legal in New Zealand. I'm not sure if it's legal in some states in America, but in, in New Zealand, you can use a two-way radio to communicate to a mate if they're sneaking on an animal. And, and we were just staying in touch, and he would just ask questions like, is it still there because I can't see it because there's too many folds. I'd be like, yep, it's still there. It's bedded down, or now it's feeding, or it's you know sniffing the hind, whatever, just communicating over that few hours. And it was agonizing because I was loving spending time helping my mate try and get it secure as animal but i really wanted to get down to the stag that i'd shot so i was <laughs> hurry up Andre, hurry up you know my brain and he finally gets over to where he uh, gets to within 40 meters and he being his first drawback on an animal he actually didn't even look through his peep sight because he missed the deer and i you know i didn't know what he'd done but he came back afterwards and he's like man you know what i didn't even look through my peep sight i just aimed at that stag and the, uh, at the uh, arrow went like four meters low or something he didn't even be anywhere near it because um, <laughs> he had looked through his peak sight. but anyway probably three days later he actually shot a really nice 10 point stag which is um you know we were after a bigger class animal but we didn't get to see a bigger class animal for an, for an opportunity but he took this really heavy 10 point stag on that same hut so we both took stags and um we didn't cape them out but we we took back stakes off and we ate those at camp we didn't break the whole animal down, which you, which I think you have to do in America. In New Zealand, most people will just take the prime cuts if they're on a backpack hunt. If you're doing a meat hunt, you'll take everything you can and you'll get it right. sausage and minced and you know, do all the stuff that you want to do to uh, fill your freezer. But on this hunt, um, you know, I got down to my my stag first because as soon as Andre made that shot, I basically said all right mate yeah tough luck i'll catch you down at my stag bite and just went straight down to my stag and i just remember when i finally got to it you know it was it was dead right where we'd shot it it didn't go anywhere it just fell onto that scrub and you just couldn't see it but i got down to it and it was like this it was just such a great feeling of you know team workmanship we'd worked hard leading up to that point anyone that goes on backpack hunts knows that it's hard work and when you do get an animal it's just that much more rewarding um and the fact that I was able to share that moment with a, with my mate who eventually came down and joined me and we took some photos, you know, did that usual celebration that you do when you get an animal. Um, we, we're not ones to beat our chest and be all, you know, like woohoo type stuff. It was, it was usually fairly uh, quietly talking and just reflecting on the hunt. But 
it was just it was just such a great hunt that one in two thousand and nine because we over that two week period we covered one hundred and eighty seven kilometers by foot and I know that because the, the GPS and going and Google Earth and just tracking where we went for every every day zigzagging down to get water back up like I've calculated it all because I was writing articles during those years for a magazine between two thousand and seven and two thousand and eleven so um that story, when I wrote that one up, uh, it was called Bruised, Battered, But Not Broken. That's what I titled that that particular hunting story. And, and I actually filmed, I filmed as much as I could. Back in those days, I was just filming just because I loved hunting and wanted to keep the memories. I didn't film for any other reason. I wasn't trying to make DVDs or, or put it on YouTube or do any of the stuff that I'm now doing. But I've still got that footage. So I kind of cut up and edited about 20 minute film on that hunt but it, you know the film that i had was, was about three hours long because literally when you're filming for your own reasons you're actually trying to catalog the whole thing so you can look back on it and be like that's what we did eh? we covered all that ground and we um you know we went to all those different catchments and we saw these different animals and trying to condense it into 20 minutes it probably doesn't do that hunt justice but that two-week backpack hunt in the southern alps where we we would we shifted camp almost every second day on our backs and at four different stages in that whole two-week period we actually packed out at night time and then totally shifted to a new catchment by driving you know maybe an hour or two hours around to another point and then punching in at night so most of the walking that we were doing between a to b to move camp was actually at night sometimes we wouldn't set up camp till one or two o'clock in the morning which is doable if you're walking riverbeds on tracks or if you're on ridges, you, we, we never did any of that walking until two o'clock in the morning, pushing through native scrub without a track. That's just too hard, takes too long. You wouldn't cover that much ground at night being so hard terrain anyway. So we would do that big moving or logistical moves at nighttime, which meant the daytime was, was purely for hunting. We, we weren't carrying our backpacks much during the day it was hunt you know we'd push into catchments which allowed you to push further because you didn't have this heavy gear on your back right um we'd do the moving of camp at night which just meant after that two-week period i lost i lost 11 kilos and andre lost nine kilos in body weight and we both ended up with cold sores we had a big crash our bodies were absolutely spent after that two weeks because i think we'd we'd been obviously working ourselves too hard (laughs) Sleep. I had to look up 11 kilos. That's 24 pounds. That's you lost a lot of weight. <laughs> yeah. Mate, I've got a photo, a photo of it because I'd just never seen my body look like that before. Um, I went from like 82 kilos to 71 kilos, and I haven't. I at that point I was mid 20s. I was 25 years old, uh, and I'd never been into my 70 kilos. And since I was like 15 or 16 years old, no, 16 years old, I was in my 70s. Mm. Um, so. I was looking really actually sick just just from you know using a lot of energy but not eating enough because when you're on these backpack hunts you might start out with a fair amount of food but towards the end you're kind of making um, making do with the meat you've shot on the hill which um, you know, is is good but it's not you, you don't I don't snack on it for breakfast and lunch and and evening uh, evening you do but you don't snack on it throughout the day so we just we just lost a lot of weight and there was a lot of there was a lot more calories being burnt and what were being um, consumed so that hunt for, for for all the right and wrong reasons I mean I don't try to do that to my body now where I'll lose 11 kilos but I still try to maintain that that attitude of covering ground and doing um, making the most of a maybe your one or two hunts a year right I mean yeah. nowadays everyone's got jobs we've got families we've got these responsibilities and commitments it's harder and harder to get out for these hunts um, all the time. You, you might only get one or two chances a year to do that. And we, we've we always just made the most of those opportunities, like many people do. Um, but that was our memory, Southern oh, Alps 2009. Uh, yeah, and it's cool that you ca- captured that on film. I, I watched that. Uh, you sent that to me in an email. And, um, yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I think – it doesn't matter what country you're on or where you're at. I think those same things are spending time with friends, the camaraderie of the hunt, working hard and having it pay off. There's just nothing like that, that feeling. It's just incredible. 
Mm, absolutely. And I think when you are able to um, retell that story with, with another person that can verify and vouch for it, it just it holds more meaning than, than, than when it's just you and, and, and you can only tell that story, but no one else really understands that story because they didn't go through it. You know, that person that you go with, generally for any of those hunters that you go and share those experiences with, you form a really strong friendship because you both have to go through some hard times together, and it makes you makes you closer as a as a as a mates. You know, you uh, that's probably like going to war. I know that sounds like a terrible analogy, but you know, you go through hardship with somebody. Not that I've ever gone through anything like that. I think those people will be very close because they had to have each other's backs, literally yeah. have each other's backs. And so, but my, my friendships, and I look in my life, I've got some really strong friends friendships with hunters because of those common interests and those common um you know the, the blood sweat and tears that you both shed together doing those backpack hunts yeah and i'm really really grateful to have those friendships you know thanks thanks to my father and that stan Lowe for bringing me into the outdoors and giving me this amazing platform to grow as a person but also form great friendships uh, i don't i don't know if i'd be that well i wouldn't be the same person without it just just wouldn't be absolutely well jamie i uh i want to do this i want to hear some more of these stories because i know you've got a lot more up your sleeve but for time's sake today uh, maybe we'll postpone that for another date and i'd like to have you back on to talk about some of these things that i know nothing about and some of those other hunts that you've had also i want to talk a little bit about you know <sighs> hunting Idaho. You're going after elk in Idaho. I want to hear a little bit about just kind of your strategy for that. I mean, I can't, for me to pick up and go hunt New Zealand, like just how overwhelming that would be to know what I would need to do and that kind of thing. Um, so I want to hear some of those stories as well. Are you game for that? Yeah, definitely. And look, I, I, um, I'd happily talk through some of the things to think about if you ever want to come and hunt New Zealand for chamois tar, red deer, seeker, Rusa, Samba, like any of the species that we have in New Zealand, it's all on public land and it's all accessible. You don't have to get a guide. You can DIY it, do it yourself like what we're doing in Idaho. So I'd happily uh, shed light on that for anyone interested in going to New Zealand because it is, it is very different but equally amazing um, well, place to hunt. Well, I'm definitely going to take you up on that. So we'll, as soon as we uh, stop recording today, we're going to set up our next time where we can get together. I know you got your New Zealand vacation trip coming up here, but uh, if guys want to check out uh, some of these videos that you've been talking about, uh, go over to Mountain Man Hunting Films on YouTube, and then also on uh, you're on Instagram as uh, mine closed. What's your Instagram there, Jamie? Yeah, that's all right. It's uh, Mountain Man underscore uh, New Zealand or NZ. So mountain man slash NZ. Okay. All right. So guys can find you there and uh, check out some of those videos that we've been talking about, but man, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing how you got into it and some of your stories. And, uh, it sounds like some exciting times that you've had. Yeah. Cool. Thanks for that, Travis. I really appreciate it. I think it's a great way to, uh, share our passion and interest. These podcasts are becoming more, more prominent across the world. So I reckon all the best for 2020 and yeah, I'm going to look forward to listening to a few more of them now. Absolutely. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you. I think it's incredibly cool that I can get on my computer and um, open up an app, call a guy that's on the other side of the world that I've never talked to before, and he and I can have a great time talking about this common thing that we enjoy together, which is hunting. Um, and we're hunting different species and different forms, different walls, and... Uh, I just, I love that about hunting. It connects us together and it's such a powerful thing. And I'm so grateful that God has given us that, uh, especially in a world where people are just not uh, together. We fight over all kinds of things and we argue and we, you see chats and uh, comment sections on Facebook and it's just, I don't know, it's a firestorm sometimes and you turn on your, your TV and it's not much better. Um, that's what's cool about hunting to me. Uh, is that we have this connector um, that is a, a cool thing that we get to enjoy. Um, the same could be said uh, for church. Um, <laughs> I don't know uh, what your church experience is, but I can tell you that whenever you gather any group of people together that have different backgrounds, different um, races, different beliefs, and you put them together in the same room and, and try and have a common goal, 
man, it is, it's hard for that to, to work sometimes. And um, I can just say the same can be true with church. Church is not a building. It is a people. And when you put these people together, there are challenges. And Paul recognizes that and says in 1 Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and in thought. Um, I just be flat honest and say that we have utterly failed at that sometimes in the church. Uh, we, we let petty things divide us. We let our preferences divide us. We let people's words, you know, the fact that people are human. I don't know if you've ever said that, you know, the church is full of hypocrites. You're, you're right. We've got, it's true because they're humans in there. Uh, and we all, we all struggle. And, um, so reality is, is that no church is perfect. Um, but who we are following is. And so for me, whenever I, the reason I go to church, the reason I am a part of one is because it's such a unique situation. We are connected to each other. We are able to get along uh, in the church that I'm a part of because of our love of Jesus. We have people in our church who would identify as very much like conservatives. We have people in our church that would identify as liberals. We have people that have different opinions on how you interpret different parts of the Bible. But the one thing that we all agree on is that we believe Jesus is the Son of God, and he told us to love each other, and we're going to love each other despite how different we are. I think that's the beauty that can be the beauty of church. And I don't know if that's your experience, and if it's not, I'm sorry. I'm sorry if you've been burned by church, but I'd encourage you to maybe give it another chance. Um, Once again, it's not about punching your ticket whenever you come in the door so that you can just get your holy check mark from the Lord because you showed up. It's about belonging to a group of people, and you're able to do more because you are a part of a collective group. Um, Just by yourself, solo Christianity, it's hard to impact the world, but as a group of people, you can do a lot more, and you need those people in your lives to to challenge you, to help you grow. So there's my little soapbox sermon on unity and uh, just what connects us is what matters. And so I hope that relates. hope that... uh, makes sense to you. Thank you guys so much for listening. Once again, I just can't say thanks enough for coming back for another episode. We'll have another one next week. Yes, I do have one lined up, and I'm excited about that one as well. As always, I just want to encourage you, if you could, leave a review and all that good stuff, and remember to shed the light.